Good morning again. Today we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Our scripture comes from Matthew chapter 6. And uh, in case you don't remember, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a section of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It begins with, in chapter 5, you know, Jesus went up on a hillside, sat down, and his disciples gathered around him. And so there were hundreds, literally perhaps thousands of people there. Uh, And Jesus sat down and began to teach them. And the entire Sermon on the Mount is recorded in three chapters of Matthew. We're going to focus today on just a portion of chapter 6 where Jesus talks about prayer, how we should pray, uh, when we should pray, why we should pray. Uh, And we're going to look in depth at that. Let me, uh, let me begin by reading our, uh, our scriptures today. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Jesus says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for, suppose, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, and this is a part you all know, online or at home, you can say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So remember that Jesus was speaking to a, you know, probably a vast majority of the people listening to him were Jewish people. Uh, There may have been some Gentiles among the crowd, but the vast majority were Jewish, and the Jewish faith required that Jewish people pray certain prayers at certain times during the day. Uh, When they got up in the morning, uh, they would have to pray at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., again before they went to bed at night, and there may have even been other times. These were prescribed prayers. There were certain words they were supposed to, um, supposed to say. And you've all heard of the Pharisees, yes? Well, you know, the Pharisees were uh, the religious zealots of the time, if you will. Uh, you know, they were the most devout, quote-unquote, Jewish people, the most strict observers of the law. So when it came to these prescribed prayers, oftentimes the Pharisees, you know, if you had to pray at, at 9 a.m., for instance, a Pharisee might make certain that he was standing on a busy street corner in Jerusalem, and he would stop whatever it was he was doing, and at exactly 9 a.m., he would say this prayer out loud right there on the street corner because he was so observant of the law. He would do it again at noon. He would do it again at 3 p.m., and Jesus was saying to this largely Jewish crowd who had witnessed this type of behavior over and over and over again, he's like, that is not how to pray. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. 
He says, when you pray, you're not talking to the crowds around you. You're talking to God. Think about that for a second, folks. Because we, here at Chicopee Baptist Church, any other church in the United States, anywhere else really in the world, are we any different? Are we any better? How many of you say grace before you eat a meal? We do, every single time. You know, how many of you really are humbling yourself before God during that moment? Or is it just a vain repetition of words that you've said three times a day since you were a kid? That's just one example, folks. The Lord's Prayer that we recited here this morning, we often, we, we say the Lord's Prayer in this church more often than I've ever heard it said in any other church I've ever been associated with. And that's great. It's the perfect prayer. It's laid down for us right here in Scripture. Jesus lays it out line by line. This, then, is how you should pray. That's great. But how, to, to too many of us, it is just a vain repetition of words that we have prayed a thousand times. Pray is almost too strong a word for it. It's just something we say, right? We can recite it in our sleep. We've known it since we were kids. But listen, folks, when you say, Our Father who art in heaven, you're talking to God. And God is not taking that lightly. And neither should we. Right? Prayer matters, folks. Throughout Scripture, we see prayer used in powerful ways time and time and time again. Jesus, the Son of God, was God himself. And he went time and time and time again alone to pray. He was God, and yet he still prayed to God. If it's important to Jesus Christ, how important should it be to us? Do you think Jesus Christ took it lightly? No. No, he did not. And neither should we. Prayer, folks, is serious business. You are entering the throne room of God when you pray. I wasn't going to say this particular part, but I just want to put it into some perspective for you, right? You know, suppose you were invited into the Oval Office. That would be quite an honor, right? Most American citizens never get invited into the Oval Office. I don't care who the president is or where your politics lie. You know, that's a sacred office. It's an important part of America. It's something that we should take seriously. If you get invited to go to the Oval Office, you should take it seriously, right? How much more so the throne room of God that you enter time and time and time again? How much more important is that? You know, it's serious business, folks. And the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus lays it out for us, 
is literally perfect. Imagine that. Something Jesus laid out for us that's literally perfect. It answers every question. Who, what, when, where, and why? Who? Who are we talking to? What? What does he deserve? And what do we need? When? It deals with the past. It deals with the present. It deals with the future. And we're going to look at all of those. Where? It applies in heaven and on earth. And why? Because the last part is, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Why are you praying? Because for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Don't ever stop. Don't ever forget who you're talking to, folks. There are nine parts to the Lord's Prayer. The first three elements deal with God. It puts God in his proper perspective. The second three elements deal with us and puts us in our proper relationship to God. We come after him, not before him. And then it refocuses on God for the final three elements, and that's what we're going to look at today. We begin with our Father who art in heaven. That is not to wake God up or get his attention. That's not why that line is in there. Do you think God says, oh, Troy just said our Father who art in heaven. I think I'd better start listening to Troy now. No, God was listening to me long before I said that. God didn't miss anything. That line is in there to remind me of who I'm talking to. I'm talking to my Father who is in heaven. I'm talking to the God of the universe. I'm talking to the one who created me, the one who created you, the one who holds the past, the present, the future. He's got it all in the palm of his hand. That's the guy I'm talking to. That's why that line is in there. That line's in there for me, not for God. God knew before I ever said that that I was about to talk to him. That line is in there for us. You know, there was a, I read a story, it's, probably, it's probably 25 years ago that I read this story, and it wasn't a new story then. <clears throat> Some president, I can't remember, a long time ago, Roosevelt, Truman, somebody like that, he hosted a dinner at the White House. Uh, there was a chaplain or some preacher that was there, and uh, he was seated at the far end of the table from the president, and the president asked him to say grace, so he did. After the dinner, uh, the president came up to him and said, hey, next time I ask you to pray, speak up a little bit. I could barely hear what you were saying. And the chaplain said, well, I wasn't talking to you. you know? Again, we're supposed to have this in perspective, right? I'm not saying that it's wrong to, you know, when you're praying in front of or for a group of people, you probably should speak up so they can hear what's being said, so they can agree with you in prayer. That's important, but... But don't forget who you're talking to. You know, I get a kick sometimes. It hasn't happened in a long time, but I used to be a member of a church in North Carolina many years ago. And there was a, uh, a well-educated and successful man. Uh, you know, he was a principal at a local high school and had been for 30 years by the time I ever met him. Uh, 
And he, uh, you know, it was a really down-to-earth, really nice guy. Uh, but when he started to pray, I mean, he became a 16th century Englishman. You know, oh, Heavenly Father, we art before thou today, you know, in a humble presence before thee. Yeah, I mean, how many of us talk like that, you know, day to day? No, nobody, right? Nobody does. You'd look at you, you'd, people would think you were insane if you did that. Why do you talk to God like that? You know, I think I, it may have just been out of force of habit on his part. I mean, maybe that's the way he was raised. I don't know. I'm not trying to condemn this guy. I'm just trying to say that, you know, that God should be our focus. And it's not so much about what we're saying. It's about who we're saying it to. Right? So that's why. This perfect prayer starts off there. It starts off with reminding us of who it is we're talking to and in whose, uh, and in whose presence we are standing when we do it. Right? It continues in the same line, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. How many of you can define that? Really? How, how, how many of you use hallowed in your day-to-day -day conversation? Not too often, right? The hallowed halls of a prestigious university, you know, something like that maybe. But again, that's kind of more fancy than most of us speak in our normal lives. But hallowed is defined as holy, special, set apart. And remember who we're talking to, right? And so the first thing we say to him is, hallowed be thy name. Again, it's a matter of putting God in perspective. You know, God's name, you've heard it said, the name above all names. I think we just sang that, right? Name above all names, the name of Jesus, Names matter, and particularly, I remember Jesus was talking in this when he's laying out, this is how you pray. Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people who would have been familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, names held a very special significance. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see God being given a variety of different names. You know, after after God would provide a miracle, they, would, they called him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. You know, and it goes on and on like that throughout the Old Testament. You know, names reflected in the Old Testament, the names reflected the character of the person who held that name. <clears throat> so, again, when we say to God, you know, hallowed be thy name. That's not for him. He already knows his name is hallowed. He already knows he's the great I am. God already knows these things. This is for us to remember who we're talking to. And then Jesus says, thy kingdom come. 
And of course, that's words that we've said a thousand times. What does it even mean? You know, well, we've all heard about, you know, you should pray for the end times. Uh, uh, you know, Jesus says, watch and pray. You know, Jesus talks about the end times, some in the New Testament. Um, but listen, let's just break this down for what it is. What is a kingdom? It's everything that you rule over, right? And each of us has a kingdom of sorts, right? Our home, our lives, our little world. Right? But God's kingdom, how big is that? That's everything, right? Is there anything that God doesn't own? You know, in the Psalms, God says, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. What have you got to offer? What can you give to me, says God. God. God wants our worship. And that's why when Jesus, the Son of God, says this is how you should pray, Jesus is teaching us this is a form of worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom that is all-encompassing. It is the entire universe. All of that. Your rule, God. Your Desire your everything be done. That bring that on because my kingdom, I have my own kingdom, is nothing compared to yours. But folks, too often, whether we're praying the Lord's Prayer or we're just praying in the morning or we're praying in the evening or we're praying over a meal, we're praying that God makes his kingdom part of ours and not the other way around. We want God to adjust his life to us. And that's not the way God works. So when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, he's saying that we're telling God, look, you know, we want you to rule here. I want you, God, to rule over my life, over my house, over my job, over my family, over my health, over everything about me. God, I want you to rule. Thy kingdom come. That's what that means, folks. It's not saying send Jesus back so we can get all this over with. It's putting it in perspective. We're saying to God, I don't want to be in charge of me, God. I can't. I'm screwing this up. I need you. Your kingdom come. And he continues, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. You know, if we are really in a proper perspective with God in our lives, I guess I'm not used to talking as much. I'm getting hoarse right here in the middle of my sermon. That's, uh, um, you know, wow. This is exciting stuff. Uh, Thy will be done. If our lives are really a part of God's kingdom and not the other way around, if we're not expecting God's kingdom to be a part of our lives, if instead we're making our lives a part of God's kingdom, then the next line is very, very natural. Your will be done, God. You're the king of your kingdom. I want what you want to happen to be done. It's a natural part of a prayer. Um... Imagine, again, let me 
try to put some perspective on this. Suppose you saw a homeless person and you invited them to your house for dinner, right? So you brought them to your house and you're going to give them a meal. Now, there's no way they can ever repay you for this, and that's fine. You don't need them to repay you for this. You've got an abundance of food. You're going to feed them, and that's, you know, hey, it's what Jesus said to do, right? So you bring this person in who you don't really know, and they come into your living room, and they start rearranging your furniture. You know, and they take pictures off the wall, and they try to move them around, and they move flowers from one table to another, and they turn your couch around so it's not even facing the TV. What are you going to think? That doesn't make any sense, does it? You know, how welcome are they going to be in your kingdom? Right? So when we say to God, hey, God, I've got my will. This is what I'm going to do. I need you to go ahead and bless it. Does that put it in perspective for you? God is the ruler of the universe. Who are we to go in and rearrange his furniture and say this is how it's going to be? Again, this is for us to put in perspective. You know, we got to remember who it is we're talking to. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know, we don't get to tell God what his will is. You know, one of the prayers I try to pray every day, and I do remember it most days, is I say to God, God, give me the wisdom to recognize your will and the courage to follow it. Right? It's another way of saying your will be done. And if there's some small part I can play in accomplishing your will here on earth, then please let me do that. Right? I want to be a part of your will, God, not the other way around. Again, it's a matter of perspective. Um, you know, the bottom line is that acting contrary to God's will is simply a recipe for disaster. If the person rearranges your furniture in your living room, as soon as they leave, you're just going to put it back. You know, you're not going to let their will stand. It's a minor and temporary inconvenience. Look, folks, we are minor and temporary in the span of time. There were billions of people that came before us. There's likely to be billions of people that come after us. You know, if you look at the span of time from creation to the end of Revelation, you know, our part's about that wide. So who are we to say, well, I'm going to go... And tell God what to do during this little snippet. You know, God knows the end from the beginning. And we'll say that one more time just so you, you catch it properly. God knows the end from the beginning. Right? When God said, let there be light, he already knew how revelation ended. None of this has caught him off guard. Not a single thing ever. We don't have a God we can surprise. And it's best if we keep that in mind when we're telling him what he's going to do. Because that's just simply not how God operates. And it's best if we remember that when we're talking to him. 
And we say, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. How many of you have the slightest control over heaven? None. How many of you have any real control over earth? Not really. You know, you can make some decisions for yourself. You can affect the people around you. Certainly you do. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that we are unimportant. We are all very important to God, important enough that he gave his son to die for us. All right, so, you know, don't lose sight of that. Don't think that you are nothing, but when you're, you know, you've got to keep it in perspective. When you compare yourself to an almighty God, you know, you don't rank real high. Okay? So... This part of the perfect prayer is transitional. We say, God, we want your will to be done on earth, right here, where I live. My whole world exists on earth. I want your will to be done here, just like your will is done in heaven. Now, the last time somebody in heaven tried to do something that was contrary to God's will, it got Satan and all of his demons cast out. Right? That was the last time somebody in heaven said, I'm going to do something different and contrary to God's will. So if that's what happens in heaven, over which you have absolutely zero control, what do you think is going to happen if you do something contrary to God's will here? We're supposed to... We're supposed to be a part of God's kingdom. God is not a part of our kingdom. And this transition here on earth as it is in heaven transitions from the three elements that put God in his proper place in this prayer and transitions to us here on earth where we come to God in what's called supplication. Uh, we come to God asking, not demanding, but asking for nothing short of his unlimited grace. Right? We begin by saying, telling God what we need in our present, right? We all have to live in the present. I can't go back and change a single thing about the past. I have no real control over the future. But in this moment, in this present, you know, I still have a free will. And this is where I operate, is in this moment and in this present. And so we begin there, where we are, putting us in our proper place, right? Where we are in relation to God. God is timeless. God can control the past. God can control the future. God does control the present. <sighs> but we put ourselves... In the present in him, we say, give us this day our daily bread presently. This is what I need, God. You know, I need, I need food for today. But it's not just talking about food, right? Food is a necessary thing for us to live. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Uh, Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. 
But <clears throat> so he's not just talking about food. You know, what we're saying here when we say, God, give us this day our daily bread, is give me what I need for today, God, because I've already said I want your will to be done where I live. Right? Now, if I'm going to help you, if I'm going to be a part of, help you is probably too strong a word, if I'm going to be a part of your will being done here where I live, I've got to do it in the present, and I've got to have the things I need to get going for today. So, what I need, God, is your grace. Notice, it doesn't say, give us this day our weekly bread. It doesn't say, give us this day our monthly bread. Why? Because how often do we need God? Every single day. If it is, in fact, true that God gives us every single day exactly what we need, then every single day we need to ask God for exactly what we need. More to the point, we only live in this present, not even in this day, right? There's already a past to this day. There's a future to this day. We only live in this present. I need God's grace every single instant of this day. You know, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, pray continually. Well, if we learn that when we pray, we're putting God in his proper place, we're putting us in our proper place, and we're asking for the only thing that we can really expect, which is the grace for what we need for this very instant, and that's what pray continually means. It means we are constantly humbled before the God of the universe who has never in all eternity ever thought of anything other than you. Again, a matter of perspective. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Israelites received manna in the desert. Every morning, they would go out and they would collect this manna. And that's all the food that they had. And how long did that manna last? One day. I mean, you could collect as much as you wanted. You could have collected 100 pounds of this stuff. But what happened to it if you kept it overnight? The next morning, it was rotted and full of maggots. Except on the Sabbath, when they weren't supposed to go out and gather manna. They would gather it the day before the Sabbath, and they would gather enough for two days, and it did not rot overnight. Now, is that not the grace and the miracle? That is God providing every single day what they needed. Right? And that's what, has God changed? No, God has not changed. So, you know, what do you think God provides to us? I mean, there's not manna laying on the ground every morning before us, but... You know, is God prepared to give us what we need today? Absolutely, He is. You know, later on in this very same chapter, in fact, at the end of this very same chapter, Jesus talks about worrying and how much good worrying does us. And here is how he wraps up 
that section. This is how he wraps up this chapter. He says, So do not worry about about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So moments after Jesus preached this part about, hey, this is who you pray to, this is how you pray, and this is why you pray it. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got its own problems. You know, you worry about today. God is providing for you today. God is providing for you all day. God is taking care of you now, in this instant, in this present, in this very second. That's what God is providing for you constantly. And so when we come to God, you know, in this perfect prayer, we are saying to him, this is what we need in our present. But God, we also have a past. And that's the very next part. It says, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. And this is the crux of the problem and why we need to pray in the first place, right? God will have no part of sin. Sin separates us from God. So the way we have sin removed is I can't remove it myself. I've got to ask God to forgive me. And so that's what I do. In the central crux part of this prayer. In fact, I'll tell you how central it is. And this will, I, I, I just literally learned this yesterday when I was putting together my final notes for this sermon. I, I, I realized that this forgive us our trespasses, this asking for God's forgiveness, came very close to the middle of the prayer. And in the New American Standard Bible, the NASB version that I use, before that word forgive, in this prayer, there are 32 words. And after the word debts or trespasses, there are 32 words. It is literally right in the middle. Um, And again, If you use a different translation, there may be a different number of words, just depending on how the translators went about doing the original Greek. But I I found that to be fascinating. But it is the crux. It is the crux of our problem. Our sin separates us from God, and, and, and we require God's forgiveness. And that is, I I don't want to say contingent. Contingent is the wrong word. But as we continue on, it says, as we also have forgiven others, right? As we have forgiven the people who have sinned against us. And let me tell you what, folks. Putting God in in his proper place is one thing. Putting us in our proper place is another thing. Uh, Those are fairly easy compared to this little phrase. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgiving somebody else who has seriously wronged you is incredibly 
hard. Incredibly hard. But let me tell you this, a little secret. Your forgiveness of someone who has seriously wronged you doesn't do them any favors at all. It pulls that burden off of you. It takes that anger, that resentment, that hate, that whatever you might be feeling, that pain, it takes all of that off of you. Look, I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm also saying, telling you this, if you forgive somebody, it doesn't make what they did right. You're not saying it's okay. You're not saying, hey, you know, I trusted you and you totally messed me up. That's not okay. But, and, and I don't ever have to trust you again. But I forgive you. And that burden comes off of me. That's, that's the key there, folks, is when you forgive somebody, too many times we think we're telling them it's okay. It's not okay. They did us wrong, and that's between them and God. They've got their own confession to make. You can't confess that on their behalf, but you can forgive them, and it can take that burden off of you. That hate, that anger, that sadness, that resentment, that whatever you might feel, that sense of loss, that whatever is burdening you because you have been carrying this, this with you for so long because you have not forgiven them even though they did you so terribly wrong, that burden will be off of you. As Jesus was being nailed to the cross in incredible pain he said father forgive them and if we expect God to forgive us when we have gone into his living room and we have rearranged his furniture then we have to be willing to forgive the person who came in and rearranged ours we have to be willing to forgive the person who did us wrong. It doesn't make it okay, but it does take the burden off of us. All right. The final thing is what we need for the future. We say, do not lead us into temptation. Well, all right, in the modern vernacular, in the way we speak, uh, the word temptation kind of always has a negative connotation, right? You know, I tempt you to do something wrong. Right? Well, the Greek word that is used here in this passage uh, is not always necessarily negative. I mean, it's translated as temptation, which we would always consider negative in our language, but it really could also be translated as test. Right? God does not tempt us. God will allow us to be tested. 
And when we come out on the other side of that test, our faith is stronger. But it doesn't make a test pleasant or easy. And we're simply asking God, look, please don't make this too tough on me. Okay. And so we say, lead us not into temptation, Father. Please don't test us. But deliver us from evil. For we cannot deliver ourselves from evil. Evil originated in the Garden of Eden with Satan. Or at least that's where it originated on earth. It originated in the Garden of Eden with Satan. And Satan, folks, is a lot more powerful than you and me. We got no chance battling him on our own. No chance whatsoever. Listen, do not take Satan lightly. Do not mock Satan. He is higher than you. He is more powerful than you. In fact, in Jude verse 9, Jude writes, When the archangel Michael was battling with Satan... This archangel, the most powerful of all of God's angels, was battling with Satan. Even the archangel Michael didn't dare to call Satan a name or try to take care of it on his own. He said to Satan, the Lord rebuked you. God is the only one who can deliver us from Satan. God is the only one who can deliver us from evil. That's what we need, right? It's what we need for our future. God, please don't test me and keep Satan at bay. Because when Satan comes and Satan is haunting you and Satan is causing you to, to, to be subservient to him, your only hope is that God will deliver you because I promise you, you never will be able to. That's why your relationship with God is paramount. And then we reach the last part of this, which, again, is not for God, right? When we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we're not telling him something like, hey, God, guess what? Your kingdom's going to last. God already knows that. That is there for us. Why? Why would I need to subject myself before God. Well, because thine is the kingdom. The only kingdom that really matters, right? I have my kingdom, my life, my house, my world. And it doesn't compare to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and who names every star in the sky, folks. His kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. His power. He's all-powerful. Look, folks, when you really stop and think about what that means, uh, that's a lot of power, right? And His is the glory. And that's, you know, again, the perfect prayer ends on the perfect note. Because what can I give God? I can give God my worship. 
And when I put him in his proper perspective, right? When I say, hallowed be thy name, for thine is the glory forever and ever. How much glory am I bringing upon myself? Zero. How much glory do I deserve in the great scheme? Zero. Folks, when you pray, whether it's a blessing over lunch, whether you are humbling yourself before the God of the universe on your knees before you go to bed at night, don't forget who it is that you're talking to. Don't forget that when you take prayer lightly, when you're just reciting words, Jesus specifically said, don't do that. You might as well be talking to the wall. If you don't have the proper perspective, when you go to God in prayer, you are sinning. Forgive us our debts. So as we wrap this up, Larry's going to come up and Gina's going to come up and they're going to play us an invitation hymn. Look, however God has led you, right? Maybe it's time to come up here and kneel at this altar and confess that you don't pray in the way Jesus commands us to pray. That you don't have God in a proper perspective in your life. Whatever God's leading you to do, Look, this invitation is going to be short because we're running out of time. You know, don't wait for verse 6, all right, because it ain't coming. All right, get up and come up now. Thank you.